0: Hello everyone, this is Jacob, and this week we've got the second part of Ilya Delio's lecture, Doing Theology in an Unfinished Universe. We're talking paradigm shifts, chaos theory, holarchy, evolution, the cosmic unfolding of consciousness, creation, novelty, future. It's all here, folks. Sister Ilya Delio is the Connolly Chair of Systematic Theology here at Villanova University, and she's a prolific author writing on systematic theology, spirituality, cosmology, and modern science. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Tweet at us at Theology and Dialogue. Excuse me, at Theo in Dialogue. That's T-H-E-O-I-N-D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E on Twitter. Follow us on Facebook. Leave us an iTunes review. Do all that stuff. And like I said, if you leave a review, I'll read it. And if it's too mean, I'll cry, but I'll read it anyway. Uh, This is a continuation of the episode from last week, so if you haven't listened to it yet, you might want to go back and do that first. Without further ado, here is the second part of Iliadelio's lecture on systematic theology and modern science, Doing Theology in an Unfinished Universe. Enjoy.
1: you might have remembered Thomas Kuhn's, uh, I know I had to study it uh, in my graduate days, you know, The Structures of Scientific Revolutions. And Kuhn nicely laid out methodically how scientific paradigms change. And we have yet to come to a work an understanding of the structures of theological revolutions or the structures of religious revolutions that we continue, I think, in theology sort of to tack on things to what we've known, you know, or kind of juxtapose ideas without making the significant paradigm shifts that are being called for. And maybe, you know, in light of that, I think our third, maybe most important here for this discussion is the role of evolution. Um, Evolution still is a word that, on the whole, in the U.S., uh, is not readily acceptable. More than 40% of the U.S. population uh, still holds some type of special creation, that God sort of created us, you know, particular particular, we humans, uh, in a special way and placed us here on Earth less than 10,000 years ago. Um, or we have some kind of quasi-mixture of a special creation with evolution but it's very hard for us to get our heads around the fact that evolution is our deepest reality and what we mean by this word I mean the word itself comes from the Latin "evolvere," right to unfold like a if you were to take a, a scroll and to unfold the scroll and that's really what we're talking about nature unfolds nature is a birthing process Nature has the ability to become something new. And so we're saying that it's not a static uh, order. It's a dynamic one. We are not in fixed forms. And this, again, I think in theology, I find we talk sometimes as if we're fixed species. You know, that this is what the human person is. This is what God creates. This is what God, you know, made a soul. We're changing along with nature because we are nature. And so we are... Not in a mechanistic paradigm, we're in a paradigm of process. And by process, we mean that there is lawfulness and orderliness in nature, but there's also an openness to spontaneity. So if we were to look at our lives, and this is, in a sense, we're looking now from the point of science, you know, we in the Encyclopedia of Life, we are, in a sense, um... If we look at the Encyclopedia of Life as 30 volumes, and each volume having 450 pages, and each page a million years, just get your heads around that one, right? <laughs> you know, Who can do that? Right, so volume one, The Big Bang. Volume 29, The Cambrian Period. I was in the Pittsburgh airport last week, and they had a brontosaurus like, in the middle of the airport. I said, oh, that's my nearest relative, because that's you know, around <laughs> volume 30, which is our volume. So we are the last volume, the last page, the last line, human beings. Are we the end of the story? That's our theological question, even more than our scientific question. Because in theology, we do maintain we're the end of the story. And science says, no, we're not. We are not the end of the story. We are part of nature, and we are becoming something new and that, that's the part we have to deal with. I will just mention Charles Darwin, although Darwin is credited with evolution, he is certainly not the one to come up with the term or the idea, however, he did make it uh, popular, and basically what Darwin did is, in a sense, what, what physicists did. He said there are mechanisms in nature to account for variability and, you know, species variation. They could be struggle for survival. The primary one is natural selection. In other words, species will select out those traits for optimal survival. Um, and survival of the fittest, less so. We know now that that's not so much true, that it's not an individual competition in nature. It's actually cooperation. Um, and so what I think what we can say from even Darwinian evolution, life seeks more life. That's what, in a sense, nature is telling us. Life seeks more life. And what we also know now, even from Darwin's evolution and beyond biology, is that what we thought were closed systems, we thought that nature worked by closed systems. In other words, again, if I even think about theology, the way you know, God created us, here we are. We have to love, serve, and obey God and return to God. That's sort of a closed system. In other words, there's not much new that can take place there. We just have to follow the laws. But what science is telling us today is most systems in nature are open systems. An open system is a system that's open to the environment. So the system is always sort of working um, in a non-equilibrium state. It's always sort of in flux. And in an open system, new things can happen in the system. You may have heard of chaos theory. Chaos theory is that which is based on open systems. It says within the system, something new can emerge, what we call a strange attractor, and it can pull the system into a new basin of attraction over time. So so first thing we realize is that from the point of science, things do not work like an individual, you know, straight line, it's all about me going to God. They work in terms of systems. Relationality is key here. Um, you would never find in a single cell, you know, the Golgi apparatus standing up and saying, hey, it's all about me as a Golgi, you know, who cares about you as a nucleus? Um, and what's beautiful about nature is the way that, that things within the systems will work cooperatively for self-regulation. That, you know, if you if you've read anything along these lines you'll realize that living organisms are really emerging all the time into greater integral wholes, that um, wholeness and is part and parcel of being part of system. So we're not working as individual units, we're working as, in a sense, wholes within wholes. So there's a wholeness within nature that keeps emerging all the time. And what we realize from, from nature is that nature can self-regulate. Nature can. If there's a defect in nature, it will repair itself. If there's damage in nature, other organelles will come in, and so they'll cooperate for the re, you know for the repair system. And that's what's beautiful. So we always think that we're a controlling nature when nature can do quite well on its own without us. We're more of the obstacle than anything to the natural world, quite honestly. So what we begin to realize is that what we call structure of a living, what is a structure, or what Aristotle called form, right? So we still use this Aristotelian language of form, but in the biological world today, a form is a structure made up of a set of relationships. That's actually what comprises the form, so that the, um, the structure or form is marked by its levels of organization. How are things, you know, in relation to one another? And what we are saying from the point of biology is that form emerges. New forms emerge out of new structures of relationships. So they are not fixed forms. You know, it's not like this is it, you're this. And and we're seeing this even today in our own culture, you know, in various ways. But the term that's used is emergent complexity, that in a biological world, that given the right conditions, that matter uh, within energy fields can lead to new properties and these uh, causal forces that cannot be reduced to the components themselves. It's a new way of understanding nature that is much more intrinsically relational, cooperative energy sharing. So that, again, self-organization is key here, which does raise the question, what is God doing in a self-organizing universe? You see, that's our theological question. Because we have, you know, constantly ideas of God, you know, um, working in our lives. But if God has made possible, you know, endowed nature with the ability to create itself, you know, what's left for God to do, as our atheist friends might ask. And we must answer that question from a theological perspective in a new way. Uh, just to kind of continue with this notion of wholeness in nature, the medieval paradigm was based on hierarchy. You know, we still have hierarchy within our theological thinking, certainly within our ecclesiastical structure, right? Things work from top down. They work by ontological differences. I could never strive to be the pope, right? Because you know that we are ontologically in different worlds. But that is not nature, actually. Nature works not by hierarchy, but by holarchy. And we mean by holarchy, holes within holes within holes. That there's an interconnected level of networks that constitutes this web of relationships. So a holon is something that's a whole and a part, right? So every one of us is a holon. We're wholes and part of larger wholes. So we can never talk about the individual as a discrete object distinct from anything else, because in some way that individual is part of another whole and is forming wholes as well. So that's, in a sense, what evolution does. It, it kind of produces this kind of emergence of new holons uh, with deepening relationships of holes within holes. I did throw this in. Um, I also maybe wanted to include this because you know we talk of evolution as only the evolution of matter. But more and more today, because of quantum physics, we recognize that evolution may indeed be the rise of consciousness itself. That mind is emerging out of the material world. This is still, you know, I'm not saying that this is a a set, you know, carved in stone deal. This is still quite an area for discussion, but it's something that we don't discuss in theology, right? We talk about the mind's journey into God or the soul's journey into God with no real sense that that mind is emerging out of a long history of evolving matter um, in that that mind is, in a sense, part of something more. I mean, it's a field. What we call mind is really a field of activity. Why I say this is because we have treated evolution as sort of only material evolution. And what de um, Desjardins um, and others now are realizing is that Evolution has maybe its two, maybe at least two dimensions: a withoutness, a physical evolution, and a withinness, a conscious evolution. So that my colleague John Hawk says there's an inner dimension to evolution, as well as an outer dimension. And he sees that inner dimension as the religious dimension of evolution itself. So what he's saying is that biological evolution, we're not just mere matter, and then all of a sudden God appears, you know, putting this in another way. Like, oh, all of a sudden here we are, and then, oh, we believe in God. What we're saying is that the whole Big Bang universe, you might say, has a religious dimension to it. That the whole thing is self-transcendent. The whole thing is being drawn into something more whole, more unified, more other. And so, um... Henri Bergson, who was a French philosopher at the turn of the 20th century, did not accept Darwinian evolution, and he says, we need to think of evolution in terms of time, that time is, in a sense, all about novelty, radical becoming, and he says that Darwin's evolution does not deal adequately with radical becoming, with novelty in nature. And so he speaks about a creative power of life uh, within nature that is something other than nature. He never names it as God, but he comes very close. Something other than nature that is challenging nature to move beyond itself, to transcend. And that's, in a sense, where Teilhard de the French Jesuit, picks up after Bergson. And he says that, yes, evolution is this process toward greater complexity, Given sufficient amount of time and the right conditions, new things emerge, new forms emerge, new relationships emerge. But he says, you know, should we begin to think of evolution as a new meta-narrative? You know, is this the big story that everyone shares, no matter what your religion is? You know, and that's, again, if I could just say this, the world's religions are all tied to ancient cosmologies. And that's why we can never come to a new understanding of you know, where we are in interreligious dialogue without taking the cosmological question seriously. So what Taylor is saying is that here's the big thing. We are becoming something. Nature is incomplete. It is not yet fully complete. N- nature is open. And the word nature points to an openness towards greater complexity. So there are no fixed essences. We cannot say, hey, we're human beings. Well, you may be human today. We don't know what that will be you know, in 20, 30 years time. And certainly from the point of Google you know, and technology, <coughs> something radically different. Right? You know, the Googleites posit that by 2045, we'll exit homo sapiens and we'll become techno sapiens, you know, we'll, we'll become something that's governed by our machines. Is that true or not? I don't know. What they do realize is that we have the capacity to become something different. Um, And what, you know, Teilhard would say is that how do we become something different? Three things, creativity, novelty, and future. Three things I think in in theology we've been very reticent about, you know. we, we We are not prone to think theologically in terms of creativity, novelty, and future. But um, what we are seeing is that, and I think this is important for us from the point of theology, not only science, we are not just in evolution. You know, that's not like our background story. Like, oh, that's a lovely idea to talk about evolution. We are evolution. We are this universe. If you follow the story, we are the whole Big Bang cosmos now on the level of self-reflective consciousness. We can't get our heads around that, for sure, you know. And we have not a clue of what God is doing you know, in this universe. So we have no real sense of, well, what does this mean for us? You know, what does this mean in terms of salvation? Or what does this mean in terms of redemption? Uh, because when we, t- when we use those the- theological concepts, we're here. We're back in the Mid- Middle Ages, because it's comfortable. And we can get that, right? So we're in the center. We're the mediators, matter and spirit. You know, and we're going to go to God. But we're not there, actually. We're here. This is our reality. And we need to come to terms with it. If theology is to have anything to say to the 21st century, we cannot keep talking as if you know we have one foot in the Middle Ages and one foot in the modern world. We are now evolution on the level of um, self-consciousness. And therefore, it does make a difference how we think. And it does make a difference how we act. And it does make a difference on how we believe what we believe. So, again, what I want to just point out here is that evolution is an unfinished process, and we are unfinished. From the point of theology, we talk of ourselves as being finished, you know, and we talk of ourselves in terms of uh, perfection and not perfected, you know, heaven and earth. We we still use this language of, of a dualism, rather than an emerging process of becoming something new. So, you know, maybe in the last few slides, I just want to take up, first of all, the need to bring science into an ongoing relationship and dialogue with religion. Uh, Pope John Paul II did recognize the need for a renewed dialogue, and said in 1996, you know, science can purify religion from error and superstition, and religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. They need one another, not only for the flourishing of life, but if we are truly to know, you know, to know in the sense of a unity of truth. Or as Einstein would say, science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. So this is our question. You know, how do we do theology in an unfinished universe? You see, that's the key. It's not so much, oh, I have to know quantum physics. Well, it's good to know a little bit of that. But what is our starting point for doing theology today? What is our starting point? Is it still scripture? That still holds true because scripture is about a covenantal relationship And relationship's a good word. But where's nature? Where are we with, and and nature not as an abstract concept, which is what we tend to do. We speak about nature and theology as an abstraction. When neither Bonaventure, nor Aristotle, nor Thomas would ever have done that. They were keen observers in their own day of what astronomy was saying, astrology, their own natural philosophy. So yes, we can talk about God as if some essay subsistence, right? You know, we can talk about that God's self existence, you know, that is acting. But that's an abstract. What now? What can science help illuminate for us in that being and acting? What is being? What is God's being? If energy is the stuff of life, I think here I think looking to Eastern theology may be fruitful because the Eastern theologians. Would look at God as divine energies, right, and not just as being, as this conceptual being. So, you know, here I want to just, you know, bring in Whitehead's idea, which I think is important for us. God is not to be treated as an exception to all metaphysical principles, but invoked, invoked to save their collapse. God is their chief exemplification. What we know about nature can give us clues about God and what God is can help us make sense of our lives in nature or as nature. So we are, therefore, in philosophical shifts. And I want to emphasize this. I think in theology today, we have, yes, done 20th century theology, but we haven't been cleared or loud enough about the philosophical shifts. And we know from classical theology no real theology without philosophy, right? Where your philosophy is, there your theology lies. And the question is, what is our philosophy? What is it that we hold as being? And so we are, we have shifted. 20th century, that's what it was about, from substance to energy, matter to relatedness, form to complexity, causality to complex dynamical systems. So that if we talk about philosophical shifts, in what is becoming? If we say we're becoming, you know, we can have some, again, some abstract idea of becoming in a spiritual sense. But what we're saying from the point of nature is nature is becoming. And so conceptually, I think we're saying we have an openness of being to more being. You know, and by more being, we mean a deeper consciousness, a greater relationality. If I were to just you know just put a little aside here, technology has shifted us. It has caused a paradigm shift, even in the way we understand ourselves in relation to one another. Right, the internet has sort of linked us now in this kind of new global mind. Never, never before seen in the history of humanity or even the whole universe. So something new has emerged even right in our midst. And that's what we're saying, like, in this process of becoming, we are, in a sense, always open to intrinsic creativity, to increasing degrees of relationality, and with that, to shifts in consciousness, rise in consciousness. Which means, you know, we need to talk about future, perhaps as our, our, our new metaphysical starting point for theology. I would shift from the language of being, you know, and perfection to the language of future. And by future, as uh, Schultz um, says, Leron Schultz, the futurity of future, because we talked about future as something that's gonna happen tomorrow. Oh, future is tomorrow. The future really means the indeterminacy. Like we're living still in the realm of infinite possibilities. So future is now. Future is not what's going to happen to us next week or when the semester ends. Future is what happens when I make a choice, when I collapse the many possibilities that are in my disposal into this. Um, and therefore, you know, just to hold that open about future, I want to get back to that just quickly. So, for this, so I've covered these in some ways, so I'm just going to move here. If theology is to really move into the 21st century in a significant way, it must move metaphysically. I, it cannot stay, I think, with classic metaphysics, you know, with, with new concepts of personhood and consciousness and nature. I, I mean, one of the shifts that Teilhard posits is moving towards a metaphysics of union or a metaphysics of, of the future. By metaphysics, we mean the principles <coughs> that are governing how we know what we know, right? So, you know, Thomas would say, this is it, we're coming from God, we're going to God. But, let me just skip forward quickly. What if we were to talk about not a metaphysics, but a hyperphysics? Not something that's just sustaining us as a principle of sustaining us, but what if a principle of luring us, of pulling us, something that is from the future, in other words, from that realm of up ahead, that keeps moving us into sort of more being, more consciousness. So that all of life then becomes, you know, it may say <clears throat> life is all about Easter all along the way. <laughs> so you might look at this in this way, that our one, our one reality that we really hold together, whether we're Christian, Hindu, Jew, whatever it is, is future. And our one origin that we hold together is the Big Bang. And the question for us, therefore, is how do we move into, what do we become? What is shaping our becoming? And what is God's role in this becoming? So, again, by future, we mean the foundation of things, not from below, but from ahead. Let me just skip two slides here. So, let's put this together. And we're saying that Theology has a story, right? And that's what theology does best. It gives us a narrative, just as scripture tells stories. And that narrative is about God in relation to us, we in relation to God, a fact that we might have sinned, that we are in need of redemption, that we, that we have been saved, that we will go to you know, a place called heaven and share an eternal life. That should be common elements of the story we have told now for a long, long time. But I think that story just needs to be slightly updated. You know, just as you update the files in your computer, (laughs) you know, we need an updating of this story. If, as Raymond Ponikar said, if the word of God is not to fall on deaf ears, who are we telling the story to? You know, Who is even listening to this story? And so we need to, I think, get hold of the fact that this is an ongoing creation. It is becoming something new. That newness is about intrinsic relationality and the way our relationalities are complexified, overlapping, giving rise to new forms, new ways of being in the world. What we know about nature is not, it is not fixed, it is not static, it has not always been this way. Nature can change. But we should know that from our own experience. <laughs> um, and that means new forms will emerge. And they are emerging, even as we sit here this afternoon. I don't know if you read Time Magazine a few weeks ago, but you know the front cover of Time Magazine was moving beyond gender. No longer just male and female, but now people are considering themselves agendered. And we can say, oh, that's you know that's unique. But actually, that's telling us that something new is emerging, you know, in evolution. And what we do know is that the future is indeterminate. So without, you know, without giving you my take on who God is, I think this is what the task of theology in the 20th century, as Taylor recognized in in You know, the mid-1930s. We cannot stick with the old story. The old metaphysics don't hold. The old God that the Greeks understood does no longer work. So who is God? Who is this holy mystery that we, you know, hold valuable and deep within our hearts? Who is the God of an evolutionary universe? And I think that it is important, if not mandatory for us, to begin to think in new ways, and not to fear thinking creatively, theologically, right? I think there's a, a tremendous reticence as if if we, if we go too far, God is going to, like, send a fire on us, and we're going to go to hell and, you know, spend the rest of our days in misery. Um, what Taylor recognizes that God is up ahead. God is not behind us. And so God loves new things. That's, I think, what the biggest the biggest lesson from nature. If we haven't got that by now, (laughs) I'm not sure when we'll ever get it. God loves to do new things. And we, in a sense, need to think unto the new for a world that is struggling for greater unity and wholeness. And it's 5.30, so I'm gonna stop here, thanks.
0: Up the lecture. I hope you've enjoyed it. We've got lots more stuff to come. If you're new to the show, go back and check out uh, some of the episodes we've already put out. Uh, there's lots of great stuff there. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes and share us with the theology nerds in your life. And we'll see you next time. Bye.